That's Jesus. We are here this morning because you are king of kings. You are not merely a king. You are the king of all kings. And it is right that every knee would bow before your throne, Jesus. It is right that every ruler, every power, every authority upon the face of the earth and above the earth and under the earth would bow and worship to praise you because you are king of kings, Jesus. We're here to say that you are and to acknowledge that, that all that we are orbits around who you are, that all that we do orbits around who you are and what you have done. And Jesus, we confess this morning that, that so much of our lives are not lived in right relationship to you. We confess that so much of what we do and so much of who we are is broken by our sin, yet we praise you because you welcome us to worship you as king nonetheless. You invite us into your presence and around your throne despite that through your blood. You are indeed this morning worthy of our praise, Jesus. We're so glad that we can gather as your people and sing that and say that and see that now even in your word. We pray all of this this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Church, you can sit. Welcome, Life Church. It's good to see you this morning. Um, I'll just go on record and say that the folks who are in the room at 9.15 on Spring Forward Day, y'all are my favorite church people, right? I don't care if you tell the 11 o'clock service that I said that. You are my favorite, and I'm glad that you're here. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the elders here, and I'm on the staff at Life Church, and I'm glad that you're with us today. I hope you have a Bible with you. We're going to be in the book of Ruth, chapter 3, this morning. And so whether you use your phone to get there, or one of the hardback black ones we've laid in the seat next to you, or your own old-fashioned Bible that's made of like paper and glue and stuff like that, um, I hope that you'll find that we're going to be in Ruth 3 together today. Waiting. That's an idea that I don't think fills any of us with warm fuzzies. I don't know a single person in the world who really enjoys the ordeal of waiting, the process of waiting, the task of waiting. So whether I'm talking about my seven-year-old who gets impatient waiting for us to all sit down at the dinner table and pray, and so he starts to steal food from the bowl in front of him, or whether I'm talking about myself waiting in line at the DMV, or whether we're talking about people who are struggling to wait for test results, or college admissions, applications, or anything like that. Waiting is never fun. It's especially hard when our waiting is waiting on the Lord, waiting on his timing, on his purposes, on his work, on his will. See, as people, we're wired for instant gratification, and any time the Lord calls upon us to wait, that really rubs against the grain of, of what we think we need right now. And so we struggle to wait. That doesn't mean that all waiting is bad, of course. Waiting, even as hard as it is, can often be something that is very good for us. The Lord uses seasons of waiting in our lives to mature us. He uses waiting to grow us and to sanctify us. And we find often in seasons of waiting that our waiting is not ultimately about what we get at the end of the wait. It's about who we become while we wait. Because the Lord uses waiting to grow us, to teach us to trust him, to make us dependent upon him in prayer. He sanctifies us and matures us through waiting. 
And so waiting can often be very good for us. Waiting is also good for us because it teaches us how to wait for the big wait. Like if all the things that we've sung this morning are true of us, then we, the redeemed people of God, are waiting for something. We recognize that this world is not our home and that there will be a day when our Lord, when our King of Kings returns and he restores everything that is broken in this world and in this life. And all of us, we're really just waiting for that. And so every time we're called to wait on something little in life, whether it's at the dinner table or at the DMV or in any other space in your life, That little weight, it's really just a weight that teaches us to wait on that bigger weight, to wait on our Lord's glorious return and our glorious transformation into who we were truly made to be when God created us in the first place. So while waiting is always hard, it is also often good. Last week, we left Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor of the field outside of the little town of Bethlehem. Now, Ruth, she is not the main character in the book of Ruth, in the story of Ruth by any means, but she is the character that I think we're all cheering for as we read this story, right? She's the person who we're pulling for or rooting for as the story unfolds. We've said this a few times, but she is in a pretty desperate situation. She is a poor, childless widow, which means she, in her culture, has no means to provide for herself. She has no security, no protection, no stability. And so we're pulling for Ruth. We're hoping that that something can happen in her life to redeem her from that hopelessness. All Ruth seems to have is a mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi. And it is Naomi who has conceived of the plot to send Ruth to the threshing floor in this field outside of Bethlehem and there to, in the middle of the night, propose to a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz is a relative of Naomi's dead husband. And because he's a relative of Naomi's dead husband, he has a legal opportunity, and really we should say a legal responsibility, to care for Ruth and Naomi. He should provide for them. He should protect them. And he should step up and make sure that the property, the land that belonged to Naomi's dead husband will belong to Naomi's descendants. And because there are no descendants of Naomi at this point, he's also legally responsible for providing those descendants. Which is why we can sort of think about Boaz as Ruth's golden ticket. Right? If he accepts her proposal made on the threshing floor in the middle of the night, then Boaz is the way out of hopelessness and poverty for Ruth and for Naomi. And so for that reason, Ruth has gone to Boaz on the threshing floor. She has asked him to spread his wings, his garment over her, which in this culture is a way of proposing marriage. She has asked Boaz to marry her. And last week we left Ruth waiting for that response. This morning we're going to look at Boaz's response to Ruth. And as we see his response to Ruth, we're going to see this morning a glimpse of the way Jesus, our Redeemer, responds to us when we are in need. And we'll see the hope that all of us can have in the work and life of Jesus, a hope that helps us wait on the Lord. Before we turn to the word, let's pray one more time together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. 
And we pray now that as we come to the Bible, uh, we pray that your spirit would give us hearts that are humble, minds that are eager to hear and to learn. Um, But ultimately, Lord, we pray that you would give us a spiritual sensitivity um, so that this truth would not be lost on us, so that the realities of who you are and how you work that are revealed here, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to understand them and apply them and live differently because of them. We need your help for all of that, and we pray that you would give us that help now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are in Ruth chapter 3. We're beginning in verse 10 this morning. So Ruth has put the question to Boaz. She said, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now let's look at his reply. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now I don't really know what exact response Ruth was hoping for when she put herself out there and proposed to Boaz the way that she did. Um, But that's a pretty weird way for Boaz to respond, I will admit. Like he's talking about other dudes and talking about a last kindness and a first kindness. And so we kind of need to figure out what exactly he means and what exactly he is saying. And it's, it's very significant that we do it. Some people, they like to think of the book of Ruth as a love story between Ruth and Boaz. And I'm not saying that's off the table, but it's certainly not the first and biggest love story in this book. We've said it time and time again, the first and biggest love story in this book is the love story between God and his people. The reason Ruth and Boaz matter to us is because from their family comes King David. And from King King David's family comes King Jesus, our King of Kings. And so we've seen in this story that God is working in history to save us, to redeem us, to bring Jesus into our lives. And so this really is a story of God's love for us. Secondly, this is a story of Ruth's love for Naomi. And that's what we see when we think about what Boaz says to Ruth here. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, what does he mean? Greater than the first. And that you haven't chased after younger dudes, right? Whether rich or poor. What is Boaz saying? Well, the first kindness that he alludes to here, we actually read about it back in chapter 2 when Ruth and Boaz met for the first time. When Ruth and Boaz met for the first time, Boaz says to Ruth, oh, I've heard about you. I've heard about everything that you've done, all of your kindness for your mother-in-law. When you left your home and you followed her to Bethlehem where you didn't know anybody, where you left your parents behind in order to come after Naomi and care for her. I've heard about that kindness, Ruth. Now when Ruth comes to Boaz a second time, he responds again, talking about Ruth's kindness for Naomi. See, the reality is that Ruth, she really could have gone after any man, right? She could have pursued anyone, rich or poor, young or old. It doesn't matter from Ruth's perspective who she goes after. If she finds a husband, then she's going to get protection and provision and security. The reason it's mattered that Ruth goes after Boaz is not for her sake, it's for Naomi's sake. Because what really needs to be redeemed is Naomi's dead husband's land and Naomi's family name, which can only be redeemed if someone from her family marries her and has children or marries Ruth and has children. 
But Naomi's way too old for that. And so Ruth's her only option. Ruth is her only shot. If anybody's going to redeem Naomi, it's going to be because Ruth marries a member of Naomi's family, which is what Ruth is trying to do here. Boaz, he gets that. He gets that Ruth is at his feet, not necessarily because Ruth loves him. Ruth's at his feet because Ruth loves Naomi. And so he acknowledges that, that Ruth is there out of her love for her mother. Then he goes on. He says, verse 11, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Now, if this were a love story between Ruth and Boaz, that would be probably the most predictable line in the book. Because we all know that in a good love story, a great love story, there comes an obstacle that stands in the way of the two people in the couple getting together, right? Romeo, he was a Montague. Juliet, she was a Capulet. Ross and Rachel, they were on a break. (laughs) Kermit was a frog. Miss Piggy was, well, a pig. And so there are these obstacles to these relationships really working. We expect that in any kind of romantic comedy, there's going to be something that happens that keeps these star-crossed lovers apart. Well, we've just run into it in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz says, yes, I'll do what you ask. Yes, I'm a redeemer, but there's a redeemer nearer than I. And I think he means there's a redeemer closer in the family tree who has a, a stronger legal responsibility and opportunity to meet you and to marry you, Ruth. We'll talk more about that next week when we meet that nearer redeemer. For now, he says, I will, but I can't. And so he goes on, verse 13. He says, remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now, if we think about it, it's really remarkable what Boaz has done for Ruth here. We talked last week about just how precarious the situation Ruth had put herself in really was. How easily she could have been taken advantage of, how someone could have harmed her or grabbed her or done worse to her. We talked about the fact that this was really, the whole situation was just kind of perched on a knife's edge. But here we see that because Boaz is a man of character and integrity, he cares for Ruth. He makes sure that she's not harmed, that no one takes advantage of her. He doesn't send her away in the middle of the night because he doesn't want something bad to happen to her. And even in the morning when she rises, he wants to make sure that her reputation is protected. And so he says, let it be known, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. But then notice he doesn't send her off empty-handed. Verse 15, he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And we can imagine Naomi like having been up on pins and needles the whole night, waiting to hear back about how Boaz responded to Ruth's proposal. And Ruth tells her, And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter. 
until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And there we hear that command that grates against our senses and sensibilities, that grates against our patience, that grates against our desire to have what we want right now. She replies to Ruth, wait. But she says, Boaz will settle this matter. He won't leave it undone. And so we leave Ruth and Naomi once again waiting on Boaz, on the nearer Redeemer, and ultimately on the Lord to see how he's going to work in and through this difficult situation they have been in. Now as we think about chapter 3 this morning, I want us to consider a few things about Boaz, the story's Redeemer. Um, Especially I want us to think about how Boaz shows us what Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, really is like. Scholars would say that Boaz, in this story, he functions as what's called a type of Jesus Christ. That means that he is sort of a symbolic foreshadower of who Jesus is and what Jesus will do. And so he's a real person. He's an historical figure. He's someone that actually lived in history. But as someone that actually lived in history, he also points forward in history to who Jesus would be and to what Jesus would do. And so I want us to look at three glimpses of the character and the work of Jesus that we see in Boaz. Here's the first one. I want us to think about the implications of the fact that Boaz protects Ruth's reputation. Right? We, we noticed the very tender and a gentle way that Boaz made sure that Ruth wouldn't be spoken poorly of because she came to him on the threshing floor in the middle of the night. I mean, that's the kind of thing that women of ill repute would have done, by the way. Women who had less than quality motives might have come to a man in the middle of the night on the threshing floor like that, and Ruth doesn't, or Boaz doesn't want anyone to think that Ruth is like one of those women. And so he protects her by not sending her away in the middle of the night, and then when it's time for her to rise, when it's time for her to move on, he says to his men, I don't want anyone to know that the woman was here on the threshing floor last night. All because he's not concerned about his own reputation. Boaz doesn't have to care about that. He's a, he's a worthy man. We've already seen that in the text. Everybody thinks highly of Boaz. Now he's concerned about Ruth's reputation. He protects it. He guards it. He makes sure that no one can speak ill of her. Now how does that symbolically foreshadow the life and ministry of Jesus? Well, brothers and sisters, I hope you know as we gather in this place today that Jesus has secured for us, at great cost to himself, his perfect reputation for his followers. Now, many of us, we understand that that when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross to satisfy the full penalty that our sin demanded. We understand that our sin was against a holy God, and because God is holy, that he demands justice for that sin. And we understand that Christ's purpose in living and dying on the cross was so that he could satisfy that penalty. He absorbed the wrath of God for us on the cross. And we praise the Lord for that. That's, that's a huge part of what Jesus did on the cross. But that's not the only thing that Jesus did on the cross. There's more. Jesus didn't die on the cross only to forgive our sins. He died on the cross to secure for his people 
what the New Testament calls the righteousness of God. He died on the cross to secure for his people a righteous reputation in God's eyes, in other words. This is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says in verse 21, one of the most beautiful statements in Scripture, he says, For our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. And so the first half of that, it speaks to the righteousness of Jesus in his life. He knew no sin. That doesn't mean he didn't know about sin. It simply means that in his life, he committed no sin. And so Jesus, he never got unrighteously angry. Jesus never got impatient. He never failed to wait perfectly on the Lord. He never said something that he shouldn't have said. He never thought something that he shouldn't have thought. He never felt something that he shouldn't have felt. Every single thing that Jesus did, every breath from his lungs was lived in perfect and right relationship to his creator. He lived a perfect life. He was indeed righteous but for our sake God made him to be the very thing that God the Father hates the most he made him to be sin why so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in other words that perfect sinless reputation Right, the recognition and reward that Jesus rightly deserved for living that completely perfect life, that becomes ours because of Christ's work on the cross. He earned it. He deserved it. Yet he gives it to his people so that when God the Father, the holy and righteous and just judge of the universe, looks upon us, he looks upon us as righteous. He looks upon us as holy. Our reputation in his eyes, it is perfect. It is without blemish. He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our shame. He doesn't see our failures. He doesn't see our struggles. He sees simply Christ's reputation. That is our reputation before him. And I just want to ask you this morning, Do you know how wonderfully freeing it is to live with the reputation Christ has earned rather than the one that you have earned? Like, do you know how wonderfully freeing it is to be freed from the tyranny of the self-doubt and the insecurity that comes from trying to measure up to other people's standards or trying to measure up to your own standards are trying to measure up to God's standards. Do you know how wonderfully freeing it is to rest in your reputation as righteous rather than whatever reputation you might earn or deserve yourself? I mean, that's so freeing. I can share how this truth has been just like a spring of living water to me and my own heart, one that I had to go back to and drink from this morning, Right, early, early Sunday morning, I'm up, I'm looking over my notes, I'm praying, I'm thinking about the fact that it's daylight savings time, and I'm just, you know, discouraged, and not really eager or ready to be here, and I'm just starting to, like, probe that, I'm, like, trying to think through the layers of that, why is it that I'm so, so discouraged, and so frustrated, and so not eager to gather with God's people this morning, and I realized that it's just a function of 
of transition here. So we're, we're new to Life Church. We're new to life in North Carolina, Rowan County, Salisbury. We've been here for, you know, about two and a half months, and we're settling in. We're getting to know people. We're getting to know the community. We're getting to know the church. We're kind of understanding what life is like here for us. But at the same time, I'm very aware of the fact that you're getting to know me, and you're getting to know us. And especially, you're sitting in the chair, and you're trying to decide for yourself, is James Sharp somebody that I care to listen to for 40 minutes every Sunday? Is James Sharp somebody who has his act together, who can lead our church alongside of our elders? Is James Sharp somebody that I trust, that I appreciate, that I respect, that I admire? And friends, I just want you to know, I'm like so tempted to be just paralyzed by that. Like I'm so tempted to think that the thing that I need most to do before you is to be impressive in some way. And so this morning I'm sitting there with my Bible open and I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, Jesus, I'm so glad that you're impressive and I don't have to be. I'm so glad for the fact that I can boast in your reputation and not my own. I'm so glad for the fact that your righteousness is all that matters and that whatever I bring to the table, it doesn't ultimately matter because you've brought everything necessary to the table. I'm so glad for the fact that I can boast in Christ and in Christ alone. And then I'm free to, to be myself, to be who God has made me to be and to serve you as fully and lovingly and passionately as I can. But I'm free to not have to be something that I'm not. Man, friends, that's incredible to live with the knowledge that Jesus Christ has established and secured your reputation for you so that you don't have to secure it and establish it for yourself. Like, do you know that? Do you know how freeing that is? If you're a Christian today, then Jesus has established and preserved your reputation for all eternity. Now, it cost him his life to do it, but he did it in love for you. Does that not make your heart rejoice this morning? Does that not stir in you love for the Lord and joy because of who you are in the gospel? I think it should. Here's the second thing we see in Boaz that points us to our Redeemer, Jesus. I mean, I'm just not lost on the fact for the second time in this story, Boaz does not send Ruth home empty-handed. Right, we saw that. It was a big part of chapter 2. It's maybe not a big part of chapter 3, but it's there still. Like, Boaz, he can't yet give Ruth the thing that she really wants, the thing that she really longs for. He can't yet say, yes, I'll redeem you and Naomi. But he doesn't send her home empty-handed. He gives her these six measures of barley. The way I read it, by the way, it's so much barley that he has to, like, help her lift it because it's just this massive quantity of barley. And then he promises to be back with more. He promises not to rest until he's done. I just hope you know that no one who ever comes to Jesus with the empty hands of faith really goes away empty. Like Boaz, Jesus gives his grace freely and abundantly. Like Boaz, he always gives his grace until we have more than enough. And like Boaz, his grace is never on a strict budget. He never thinks, man, I've given her some grace already. I shouldn't give her as much of this time. No, he's just free and generous. Friends, if we come to Jesus with nothing, he will always send us home with what we truly need because he is, in that sense, a true and better Boaz. 
And I wonder just how your prayer life might change if you truly came to believe that from the very depth of your soul about the graciousness and the generosity of Jesus. I mean, I wonder how how it would change the way you pray, the intensity of your prayer, the persistence of your prayer, the substance of your prayer. I wonder how you would pray differently if you really believed that every time you came to Jesus, he would send you home full and never empty. I've pastored people for a while. I can tell you that there are two big reasons why people don't pray. We don't pray because we think that God can't do anything about our situation and because we think God won't do something about our situation. We're convinced that God is either not able to meet our needs or not willing to meet our needs. It's one of the two or some combination of the two. And so we don't pray. We don't bring our need and faith to the Lord because we're just convinced that he's not going to do anything about it. But friends, Jesus is like Boaz. He meets our need above and beyond our need every time we bring that need to him. Now, that doesn't mean that he answers every prayer with a solid yes, right? I hope you know that. Like sometimes when you bring a need to the Lord in faith, he does say yes, and he delights to do that. He delights to give you exactly what you've asked him for. But sometimes when you bring a need to the Lord in faith, he says no. He says no because he knows better than you do what you really need. In the same way that my kids come to me and ask me if they can have cake for dinner, and I say no because that's not what they need, right? Our Heavenly Father, he knows what we really need. He knows what's going to bring us joy and fullness and life, and he gives us that and not what we think we want, what we think we need. And so sometimes he does say no, but that even in and of itself is grace. His no is grace because his yes for us is better than our yes for ourselves, He knows better than we do what we really need. Sometimes when we bring prayers to the Lord, his answer to us is not yet. He wants us to wait. He wants us to learn from the process of waiting. He wants to sanctify us through the waiting and to teach us to wait for the bigger wait that is still to come. And then sometimes when we bring prayers to the Lord, this is the hardest. Sometimes we ask the Lord for things and he says yes, but it's going to feel like no. I'm thinking about the times in my life when I've asked the Lord to shape my character. When I've asked the Lord, as I did recently, just to to make me more prayerfully dependent upon him. And I believe with my whole heart that the Lord answers prayers like that. But in the process, it feels awful. It feels terrible. Because he has to bring me like to the end of myself in order to teach me what he's trying to teach me in response to that prayer. And so the Lord doesn't necessarily give you every single thing that you ask for immediately when you ask him for it. But the Lord always gives you something. He never sends you home empty-handed. He always responds to your need when it's presented to him in empty-handed faith. And I just wonder this morning what your prayer life would look like if from the very bottom of your heart, from the depths of your soul, you truly believed that your Redeemer was eager to give you what you ask for. He is. Here's the third and final way that Boaz points us to the person in the work of Jesus. I just think it's incredible that Boaz doesn't rest until the work is done. And that's what Naomi says back to Ruth Verse 18, she says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest 
but we'll settle the matter today. She's convinced because she knows Boaz's character, Naomi does, she's convinced that he's going to finish what he's started. And friends, I hope you know that Jesus has made the same promise and commitment to us. He will not rest until his work in us is done. Paul was confident of that. He wrote in his prayer to the Philippians in chapter 1, he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring that work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Paul said. Now we should be clear, like Jesus has already done everything necessary in order to secure our justification. That means our right standing before God and our forgiveness of sins. There's no additional work that Jesus needs to do in order to accomplish that. But Jesus does have work to do in us as our sanctification is ongoing and our glorification is still in the future. Our sanctification, that speaks of the fact that right now, even as we sit in this room, the Lord is continuing to refine our character and to make us look more and more and more like him. One degree at a time, one step at a time, the Lord is making us look like Jesus. And he's not going to finish until that work is done. Our glorification, that's the future work, when upon the return of Christ, he will appear in glory and we will be restored to the glory that he created us to enjoy when he made us in his image. The Lord's not going to rest until that work is done, Paul says. And so I hope you hear this morning the beautiful and wonderful promise that Jesus won't rest until he's done with us. He won't rest until he's done with you. Like the work that he's doing in you, the hard work, he's going to finish it. The work that he's doing in the world, the hard work, he's going to finish it. He's not going to rest until it's complete. And I just wonder what that would mean if you really understood that and if you really believed that, if we really understood that and really believed that. I wonder what that would mean for the way that we go about our ministry. I wonder what that would mean for us as the people of Life Church. And I was thinking about that this week. You know the guys who sit um, at the end of the bench during the basketball game? Right? They're, they're the scrubs who never make it in. It seems like their job is just to high-five the superstars whenever they do something great um, and to wave the towel whenever it's like really exciting in the arena. And then maybe if the game is like well out of reach, like if, if victory is solidly assured, those guys down to the end of the bench like, they'll get in for the last two minutes just to kind of help run up the score. North Carolina fans, I know you haven't seen those guys play very much this year. I'm sorry. Um, so you just have to pretend with me what that's like. But those guys at the end of the bench who only play after victory is certain. Like, friends, that's us. That's what it means to follow a redeemer and a savior who will finish what he starts. Who has secured victory for us. I mean, our stats, they count, right? Those guys, when they get in the game, the baskets that they make, the stats that they contribute, they're on the box score. And so what we do, it's significant. It matters. But all of it is done with the knowledge that victory is certain. Because just like Boaz won't rest until his work's done, Jesus won't either. He who began a good work in you and in me and through you and through me he won't rest until it's done. And so I just wonder what that would mean for, for your life and for your ministry. I wonder who you would invest in more intentionally if you really believed that the Lord would finish what he started in that work. 
I wonder who you would serve in our church body if you really believed that the Lord would finish what he started in that work. I wonder who you would reach out to, who you would connect with, who you would pour into, who you would proclaim truth to if you really genuinely believed from the very bottom of your heart that the Lord's not going to waste any of that and that he is going to bring victory through it because he's not going to rest until his work is done. Our job, church, it's to follow him faithfully. It's to respond to his word in obedience. It's to trust that he will do what he says he's going to do. And it's to wait until he does it. Let's pray that the Lord would give us grace to trust him and wait on him in that space. Lord, we pray this morning that you would finish what you started in each of us. And we pray that you'd finish what you started through each of us. We pray, Lord, that we would not waste our days on this earth in fear. We pray that we would not waste our days on this earth with anxiety over what you might not do or what you might do or what you might call us to. No, Lord, I pray that we would rest in confidence in the fact that you complete the work that you begin. May that be true in us and may that be true through us as your people and as your church. And may you receive glory from us as we serve you, waiting on you to work. We pray that this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.